0: The fact that you know not only has our engagement of China in the economic community uh, not succeeded in getting the political reforms we wanted, in some ways, it's handcuffed us to China, making it harder for us to assert moral leadership in a way, in a way that we could have asserted when it came to South Africa and to Sudan.
1: It is the week of December 9th, and welcome to Episode 6 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have our regular crew of experts, Jody Herman, former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Dana Struhl, former senior staff member at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and we welcome back Jamil Jaffer, Uh, the founder of the National Security Institute and also its executive director. He's the former chief counsel and Senior Advisor of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And I'm Lester Munson, a Senior Fellow at NSI and also the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. This week, we're going to take a look at China's uh, clampdown on protests in Hong Kong, including the different perspectives of President Trump and and Congress, the different perspectives they take on this issue, as well as the recent publication by the New York Times of Chinese government documents that detail procedures for a crackdown on Muslim minorities in the western China region of Xinjiang all right we'll start with hong kong uh we've seen months and months of protests just a few days ago uh, was one of the biggest protests in hong kong miles of protesters taking to the streets uh they're protesting the impingement of by the chinese uh communist party on hong kong's independence in particular they're concerned about a proposed extradition law that would allow for people uh, uh arrested by police in hong kong to be taken to china for trial <clears throat> a couple uh Uh, weeks ago, Congress passed legislation that would sanction Chinese officials and Hong Kong officials who are involved in this crackdown. President Trump signed the bill into law, although he'd previously been very lukewarm or even room temperature in his support for Hong Kong protesters. He issued a statement when he signed the bill saying uh, that while he supported the protesters, the, the pro-democracy protesters, he also supported China's President Xi and that he really wants to do a big trade deal with China. So so there we have it, kind of the, the president's forced into signing this bill because it basically got unanimous votes in both the House and the Senate. I think there was one member of the House who voted no. Uh, His, if President Trump had vetoed the bill, the veto would have been overridden. He no doubt would have found that to be very embarrassing, so he's forced to sign this. He didn't really want to. What he really wants is a trade deal. Uh, So so there's this huge difference between what the president, the way the president sees Hong Kong and the way Congress wants to deal with Hong Kong. Congress is focused on human rights, focused on democracy. President Trump, while he says the things that he has to say just to kind of get the job done, what he really cares about is a trade deal. Who wants to jump in here first and talk about why we've got two such very different views of China and Hong Kong in the American government? Uh, Jody.
2: Sure. So I think historically Congress and the executive branch come at these democracy and rights issues from very different places. Uh, To be fair, the Congress doesn't carry the same diplomatic – uh obligations that the executive branch has, but I also just think that generally Congress is more suspect of regimes, authoritarian regimes and even of their compliance with an agreement should you reach one. But I, I think it's worth noting you know there's a there's a trend on this issue. You could start you know, with Carter in the 70s, but you know, even under the administrations of Clinton and Obama, you saw you know, PNTR, Uh, provided to, to China in 2000 and in 2012 for Russia, same thing. We granted PNTR, uh, to Russia at that time. That was a, that was an Obama administration step. Both of those were incredibly hard and tricky votes, uh, in the Congress. And in fact, Russia only got permanent normal trade relations uh, when it was willing to uh, sign onto the global, onto the Sergei Magnitsky sanctions, at the same time, Congress is just not so moved or motivated.
1: You think about that horrible picture of Brent Scowcroft uh, clinking what looked like champagne flutes with the Chinese just a few months after the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989. So. All right. So, Jody, is what you're saying that President Trump is really not all that different from other presidents, that he's just got institutional concerns that kind of drive the way he thinks about this issue?
2: I kind of think of this more as on on Congress's side. Like, I tend to think that Congress has moral authority on these issues and historically has carried the moral authority on democracy and rights issues, uh, contrary to pretty much every administration, not that they don't have any concerns or interests, but their obligations are different. And I think Congress has has owned this space for a long time
0: long time. Jamil. Well, I think what makes it a little more complex in this context is uh, the president's desire for a trade deal, right? And his view that a successful trade deal will reinvigorate the economy, uh, will solve his challenge he's got with tariffs right now for average Americans and particularly the middle part of the country, farmers and the like. Um, and, uh, and he sees that redounding to his political benefit and probably rightly so. And, uh, so I think there's an additional dynamic for Trump that goes beyond what I think Jody is right to say is a dynamic between the executive and the legislative branch because the executive branch has a lot of complex problems to deal with. They may not have as much leeway to sort of, you know, play the good guy, uh, on when it comes to human rights and democracy issues. Um, and Congress can and should and has played that role historically. Uh, but for Trump, it's, it's, it's particularly challenging because while he's sort of done the right thing when it comes to uh, pressuring China on its on its problems at trade and its its IP protection issues and the like, he's now in a very tough situation walking into a, a, a contentious election um, with an economy that could go in the tank if this trade deal doesn't get done. And so he may be more willing than other people to trade, whether it's national security issues or human rights issues, for an economic and a trade deal um, more than
1: perhaps others would it seems to me like every 6 hours there's some sort of statement from an anonymous administration official about how the trade talks are going well an agreement's right around the corner kind of a a first version of what could be a terrific deal is about to happen a phone call is going to happen a meeting's going to happen something something good will happen soon and the stock market responds the the numbers go up where it either at an all-time high or pretty close to an all-time high right now there's this there's this crazy game going on with the uh... with public relations and with the public statements of the administration even though they're they're mostly anonymous how you know so how in that context is the president going to be the author of as he as he must be as the chief executive of a tougher line with china on hong kong
2: right and i think there's an outstanding question here about whether or not you know whether or not he needs to be so the jobs numbers were good at the end of last week and i don't know if it's messaging or reality but the, the the Sunday news shows had people out there saying maybe maybe we don't need a comprehensive trade agreement with China maybe we're okay on our own so that could just be messaging for for President Xi, right? Increase your your leverage. Um, but it does raise questions as to whether or not we'll see a comprehensive trade agreement if we'll just see, you know, a phase one agreement.
3: I would just tie his the president's uh, lack of desire to stand on the side of the protesters and in support of, of basic freedoms and democracy with with his instinct in a variety of situations. It's not just Hong Kong. This has been one of the classic I think divides between the executive and the legislative in this administration. So Jody talked about Congress traditionally or historically holding that space of demanding that U.S. Uh, national security be a values-based foreign policy approach um, across across the globe, and, and the executive traditionally pushes back on that because of issues of, of economy or security, et cetera, that if you raise democracy issues or you raise fundamental freedom issues too loudly or too publicly or that's the centerfold of your policy, it undermines sec- hard security interests or hard economic interests. So you see Trump sort of in that same space here.
0: Jamil? But again, I think I think data is exactly right, but I think it goes further with Trump. Let's be candid. The man has autocratic tendencies, Right, and he seems to like Vladimir Putin and and Erdogan and Xi. I mean, he he likes these people that have substantial control and can wield it. And you know, he I think he wishes he could do that here at home. And so, you know, it's it's I don't think that is something you can you can you can subtract from this equation that he has a personal sort of uh uh uh, you know feeling towards this kind of a, a you know authoritarian tendency, and as a result. You know, Democrat protesters, well, you know, it's it's great if, you know, it's about waving the American flag. But if it's if it's really about getting the trade deal done me, or the let like. Me,
1: let me challenge you, Jamil. How, how different is he than his predecessors? You know, President Obama uh, didn't support democracy protesters in Iran with an eye towards eventually doing a nuclear deal there. President Bush, the first one, H.W. Bush, of course, uh, started talking to the Chinese leaders right after Tiananmen Square uh it's it's the natural order of things that that the president is going to be less concerned about human rights democracy and these kind of values based things and i don't yes trump says provocative things and he tweets crazy stuff he doesn't seem that different to me on this with the exception of from it doesn't seem that different from previous presidents except that he is so pushed the economic tariffs to a degree that I think he's kind of boxed himself in. He has to make it look like there's going to be a good deal so that the business community will think the tariffs are going to come off because if they don't and that stock market starts going down because they think there's no relief in sight on tariffs, he's got a huge problem at re-election next year.
0: Well, I think that's right. And actually, that's I think that's an interesting point about um, what Jody said earlier, which is um, this idea that maybe the messaging from the administration is designed to pressurize Xi. I actually think it's just the opposite. I think the messaging is designed to relieve pressure from the administration. If they don't get a deal, well, it's OK. We didn't really need a deal to keep the economy strong. You know, we can do it without a deal. Um, but what I really worry about, um, and um and I think it is partly – Uh, the executive versus legislative, but I think it's also partly Donald Trump and who he is, um, that he is, he's gonna be completely willing to trade human rights and frankly core national security issues like Huawei and ZTE for a trade deal, if it comes to that. And that's what I worry about is that not only are we th- going to throw out the, uh, the, the human rights baby and, and the human rights democracy baby out with the bathwater, but we may also throw that national security baby out. And a lot of babies being
1: thrown out and not a good situation, um, in this, uh, in this potential trade deal. Let's talk about the way China has responded to, uh, the, the passage of this bill and, and the president signing it. China has imposed its own sanctions of a sort on, uh, U.S. democracy institutions. Uh, and NGOs, among them, uh, the National Endowment for Democracy, the National Democratic Institute, Freedom House, others—folks that are doing work to support uh, election systems and democracy and human rights approaches in Hong Kong and and around the world. Uh, what what do we think of this? Uh, this kind—is of, this going to have any real practical impact on the ground, Dana?
3: So I would say this is this is a classic card out of the authoritarian playbook. Take a bunch of steps, limit. Uh, Freedom of action, limit uh, free press, put out your own state-controlled media narrative of what's happening and then gradually crack down on civil society organizations and then say that foreign-funded organizations are the enemy. So in terms of what this means on the ground, probably not significantly in Hong Kong could have pretty significant implications for activities uh, in China where there's genuine connections between individuals and, and organizations. And the Chinese government has already made its intentions here pretty clear. It's had in prison for the last year a member of the International Crisis Group, Uh the International Crisis Group has not been successful um, in securing the release of, of their member. Um, and I think we should expect to see more like this. So it, it sends um, fear and tamps down on any activities that these organizations would want to be doing. Sure. Right. So I just want to echo a little bit of what Dana's saying, whether we're
2: talking about China or Russia or Egypt. The goals of these governments uh, are the same, which is to blame foreign intervention, foreign nations. Whenever anything goes wrong at home, it couldn't possibly be that the people themselves dislike their government or have something to protest. Uh, Any other outcome would require some self-reflection that we know we know is impossible within these systems. It's obvious to everybody, literally the entire world, that the situation in Hong Kong is homegrown Uh, and perpetuated by Hong Kongers themselves. I also don't think it changes anything about U.S. policy. Like, it has been U.S. policy since the 1980s under President Reagan to support democracy, really for two reasons. One, because we think it's morally the right thing to do, and two, because we understand that democratic states are better allies and are more likely to align themselves towards our global goals of, of peace and security. So, like, in that vein, I want to I wanna just quote to you all, I'm going to quote Ronald Reagan, but uh, the speech that he delivered on democracy in 1983 at Westminster that I think is, is still compelling today. He says, there is, quote, there is a threat posed to human freedom by the enormous power of the modern state. History teaches the dangers of government that overreaches political control, taking precedence over economic growth, secret police, mindless bureaucracy, all combining to stifle individual accident, excellence and personal freedom. So that, that was from 1983. It, it could be equally quoted uh, today, it isn't a new phenomenon that we have authoritarian governments who are seeking to put their own interests, political and economic, before that of their citizens.
0: One of the challenges we face with our our long-standing China policy is this idea that uh, bringing them into the capitalist system um, and would generate this political reform that we just haven't seen, um, and that's unfortunate. And that I think that is one of the challenges with um, uh, with the legacy of our of our long-standing China policy Uh, now that being said to go back to your question about Reagan and Jody and and the quote
2: Jamil that was a position of a Democratic administration to be fair that was that was Bill Clinton's position with Rob's with Bob Zellick right that that China would amend its ways and there would be political reform that followed trade engagement
0: well no that's exactly right but I do think also that Republicans have taken that view too I think this has been a bipartisan view that we can we can by bringing Nations, certain nations, into the world that have been otherwise outside, and particularly bring them into the into the capitalist economic system. That that might create political reform, right? And and the record on that is mixed. It's it's not it's not one hundred percent terrible, but it's also not as as good as we might have hoped. Um, and so that means more needs to be done, uh, I think, on this front. Um, but in particular, to go back to the the to the question, I think it's interesting that you know we. We I agree with the sentiment that that Reagan expressed, the Jody expressed. It's the right one when it's applied to China. It's also the right one domestically um, that a large state is is unhelpful and and, and harmful to individual freedom and and uh, and innovation and the like. Um, but you know, applying it in the foreign context, I think that the real challenge when it comes to our China policy is that um, we haven't seen a real backlash against these new sanctions that are being imposed on our. Uh, democracy institutions. Um, And in fact, uh, you know, the president, as you pointed out in his signing statement, said, I'm signing this legislation out of respect for President Xi. I'm not sure how that works. Um, And then a few days later, um, you know, they uh, they uh, made this announcement out the wonderful gesture by President Xi to, you know, to impose sanctions or or Chinese law against uh, people who sell fentanyl into the United States you know great you know wonderful um but you're still cracking down on democracy protesters in Hong Kong uh you're still uh interning over a million muslims in in uh in 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 your in your provinces uh these are huge issues and one that if the united states does not lead on both morally politically and make it part of the economic deal right we can't claim leadership if we are not
1: leaders i think there's so i think there's broad uh uh, partisan agreement, bipartisan agreement. Republicans and Democrats that our values in Hong Kong are at stake. Human rights, democracy. Both uh, members of both parties in Congress have been willing to vote for sanctions on China, arguably against our economic interests. To promote those values in Hong Kong. I mean, I think that's that's truism. But let's but let's reflect a little bit on what you guys were talking about, which is that the thing that we thought would happen with China over the last few decades—that it would integrate itself into our kind of moral and ethical and values-based system—if we engage with them, if we opened up economically to them, if we traded with them—has not happened really at all. And we see a. Uh, a regime in Beijing, the Chinese Communist Party, that's more authoritarian than ever, uh, more likely to uh, crack down on its own people, as we'll discuss in a few minutes, more likely to uh, to repress dissent and independence in Hong Kong and other places, Tibet, uh, than it was uh, a couple of decades ago. So that that policy has not worked. Has that has the acknowledgment that that was a failure and that's a massive failure. Let's face it, China, the U.S.-China relationship right now being the most important bilateral relationship in the world. We missed the boat, all of us, not – well, maybe not all of us, uh, to Jody's point. Nancy Pelosi's was skeptical. Others were skeptical, including some in the Republican Party. But there was this bipartisan agreement, by and large, that if we engage with China, we would improve China's behavior. It didn't happen. Is either of the, of the two parties today on the Hill talking about that? Is anyone, has anyone changed their views? Is anyone, is anyone modulating their support for kind of this, uh, ability to affect other, the values in other cultures or other countries?
3: I guess to me, the question is, I think that there's absolutely awareness on the hill on both sides of the aisle that this notion that political openness would follow economic liberalization and integrating China into the like economic fold has not. Has not happened. And now the strategic risk, which I think is talked about on the Hill and really across Washington, is that the strategic level challenge now is the export by the Chinese government of their model across the globe, which is you can take certain economic liberalizing policies while maintaining an iron fist clad. Uh, clamped down on political reform or political openness, and so you see this contemplation of the China model across the Middle East in Africa, and you see the Chinese using their tools their their economic aid their infrastructure support etc while cozying up with authoritarian governments so there's a huge risk to this notion of democracy and and governments that prioritize transparency openness anti-corruption individual freedoms in the manner in which Ch- the Chinese are directly and, and aggressively offering a different model Ximil.
0: Yeah, and and to be clear, it's not that free trade has failed. It's that free trade alone can't do the job. Right Without free trade, it this whole thing wouldn't work. You have to have economic liberalization, but it has to be accompanied by a values based foreign policy that we enforce, and we've been unwilling to do that. We've simply thought, well, economics is enough it'll do the job, and I think that's the lesson to be learned It's not free trade doesn't work. it's not the Nancy Pelosi view that we should do away with free trade and just and just you know go at it on our own. It's rather free trade must be accompanied by a foreign policy that effectuates that also. And by the way, you know it's it's worth noting that members of Congress have been willing to vote for sanctions and willing to you know talk about human rights in 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 uh, in in Hong Kong. They aren't willing to pressurize the the NBA. Right or the president enough to make either one of them sort of toe the line. Right, so the president will sign the sign the legislation, uh, but will will make statements about G. Notwithstanding, the NBA and and its leadership uh, has has gotten off scot free when it comes to um, you know upholding the values of free speech, much less the, the the democracy and human rights values at stake here. And members of Congress unwilling to fight the American people on that issue.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in here and, and answer my own question. Where I think that this, the failed policy vis-a-vis China over the last few decades has actually resulted in Republicans in particular being more willing to be isolationist, both in public and in private, and it's really reduced the support in, the, in, in my party and Jamil's party for, uh, international leadership abroad. I don't think it's eliminated it at all, but I do think it's, it's had a very deleterious effect on, uh, our, our party's internationalist aspects. Uh, OK, let's uh, let's go to our exit question. Uh, and I realize that this is uh, this is probably something that never happened just because of uh, the authorities and stuff. But if if this is a hypothetical, if uh, President Trump and President Xi reach a reach a trade deal in the next few weeks, when that doesn't go too far in, you know, either um, uh, sanctioning Huawei or letting Huawei totally off the hook, but is but is somewhere in the middle, a modest trade deal between the two countries. Could it pass both houses of Congress right now, Jamil? Yes, but only because of the political implications
0: that it would have if it didn't pass Congress. I think but for uh, an upcoming election in November this year, I think it may actually face a really substantial uphill battle.
1: Jody?
2: I'm not actually sure that what's being proposed will happen to pass Congress. It'll depend no, on what the content I, yeah. That's right. That's of that right. legislation right. I'm is. I'm saying hypothetically, but hypothetically but... if it needed to, I think it probably would, but it'll give Congress another opportunity to take aim at China's democracy, human rights stances. I think it, it'll be like Russia, PNTO. Congress will get something for it if they allow it to happen.
1: Dana?
3: I agree. I think the political stakes for members of Congress, particularly in districts and states that have been so affected by the tariffs, there'll just be enormous pressure to pass it, even if it's not, you know, NAFTA 2.0, USMCA, same thing.
1: All right. I think it could not pass. So we'll go – uh, three to one in favor of a, tr- of a China trade deal possibly passing Congress. Alright, let's, uh, let's turn to our second big topic, uh, today, which is, uh, the appalling situation in China's northwest province of Xinjiang. Um, there's a million Muslim Chinese citizens who've been imprisoned because of their ethnicity and religion. Uh, escape prisoners have told horror stories of rapes, torture, uh, people being killed. Other horrific crimes. Uh, it appears to be a human rights, uh, human rights abuses on a massive, almost industrial scale. Uh, the New York Times just a few weeks ago published uh, 400 pages of official Chinese Communist Party documents that show specifically that President Xi is aware of this policy, is directing it. Uh, it, it is very clearly intentional on the part of Beijing to repress and oppress uh, the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang province. Uh, there's there's detailed documents going down to how kids who are returning from college to, fr- from college to their home villages in Xinjiang how they should think about uh, what's happening to their families how they should talk to their families what they're going to see. It's it's, it's amazing and horrific and it really uh, you can't help but think about uh, Nazi Germany Cambodia or other places. It's really a horrible horrible situation that's going on in Xinjiang. And yet, amazingly, uh, it's, it doesn't dominate the headlines. We're talking about a million people who've been put in concentration camps because of their religion or ethnicity. And we, we're not seeing it in the news headlines every day. Jamil, what's your what's your take on why the, the reaction in the West has been so modest?
0: I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons. One, um, we have a hard time relating to uh, people this far away who don't come from a culture that's ours um, or at least perceived that way um, in a society where we can't imagine this happening. You can't even imagine a million people being incarcerated um, with no cause. Um, in fact, what I think the most telling aspect of these documents that were revealed and um, and so troubling that we haven't seen a real reaction to it here in the United States um, the students uh, that you mentioned, uh, if they ask uh, the Chinese officials whether their parents are being detained for a crime, the government response was not to make it up and say, yes, there's, they've committed a crime, they've done this thing wrong. The actual the actual response was to be, it is just that their thinking has been infected by unhealthy thoughts. I mean, it is explicitly the policy of the Chinese government to detain people and re-educate them for the way they think Their opinions, their views, their religion. We're talking about 1.2 million people, more to come. Um, and the reaction of the West is, well, you know, who knows what's going on there? We can't really solve the problem, you know, figure it out later. Now, Congress, to be fair, has, uh, is, has legislation before it. I believe the House just passed, uh, the, the legislation. Um, but, you know, and it's and it's actually gotten strong bipartisan support. But again, the administration might be willing to trade it for a trade deal. Um, our lack of moral authority on this issue, even more starkly uh, than on the Hong Kong human rights issue, uh, is 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 very concerning. I mean, we are looking at potentially uh, the thing that could plague us for generations to come if we don't act, and we don't appear ready to really act in a serious way.
1: Dana, what, what's, wh- let me just kind of rephrase the question a little bit for you, and then I know you want to jump in here, but like, it seems to me, you know, we're paying much more attention to Hong Kong than we are to Xinjiang. In Hong Kong, people speak English. A lot of Americans have visited Hong Kong. Uh, it's, it's a hub of commercial and tourist activity. Uh, the protesters are using the American flag and mock-ups of the Statue of Liberty, it looks like, in their protests. In Xinjiang province, which very few people have visited, probably even including in China, uh, they, they don't speak English. We're not even sure. Are they, are they Chinese? Are they Turkic? We don't, we, we know very little. Americans know very little about the folks who live in Xinjiang. Uh, it's not on TV. Is that, is it that kind of superficial stuff that's leading to this different level of, of scrutiny of the two issues?
3: I'm very pessimistic on this. So I, you answered, you sort of answered what I would have said, which is every day you can see visuals of Hong Kong protesters taking to the streets. You see visuals of police brutality and you see unarmed civilians trying to protect themselves and protest for something. You just don't see that much about what's happening. You don't see the camps. And in fact, when you do, so, uh, since you made the comparison, uh, to the Nazis, there, everyone will remember there was at one point the, um, hosting of an international Red Cross visit to, to one of these places, uh, Theresienstadt. And there were a bunch of, of what they, you know, guests there sitting at cafes, right? And if, and if the monitors, the observers, the visitors had just looked a little closer, they would have seen what was really taking place. So we've seen, I think, once, like a, a visit by the press to something that was very tightly controlled by Chinese government by Chinese media. So you see people that don't look like they're seriously under duress, and they're very heavily monitored. So we're not actually seeing. And if you want to understand what's taking place based on these documents, you would have to go to the New York Times and read it. And you have a president here who's discredited the New York Times and and, and attempted to you know discredit fake news and lamestream media every day. So this would require Americans and others. To go educate themselves about what's taking place, and it's not easy to see it on the TV. I'm not
2: quite as pessimistic as the rest of you on this. Not that the situation in Xinjiang isn't appalling. It absolutely is. and there has been more attention on Hong Kong than on the atrocities in Xinjiang. I just think it's lagging. Like I think that we're I think we're getting there. For all of the reasons that Jamil and Dana talked about, we've been slower to get there and it's less visual. Uh, Than the situation in Hong Kong, where you don't see you're not able to see people in the streets because there's no footage there because you can't go visit Xinjiang even if you even if you wanted to, but just as a as a point of interest, I noted I have two daughters in high school. When they brought home the newspaper this weekend, there was a large article about about China and specifically about China's activities in Hong Kong and Xinjiang, right? And their article is entitled China, a great danger to an ignorant world. So I, th- I think it's a point of reference. The last time, you know, the last time I was in high school was a while ago, but the issue that was in our paper at that point in time was apartheid in South Africa it's indicative to me that if this is now making the high school paper that people actually are starting to pay attention. It's slow and I think we need what we need to be doing is looking at how do we carry that momentum forward and how do we encourage young people including people in high school and on college campuses to do for Xinjiang what they did for South Africa.
0: Jamil. Listen, I mean, if I could get members of Congress to read uh, high school newspapers, (laughs) maybe we'd we'd all be a lot better educated. I think this is an important, a really important issue. I think that... um, the South Africa apartheid case is a good one. Um, it's a good example of Congress leading also um, in, in a human rights and foreign policy area and, and ultimately successfully. Um, you know, it, But it does take leadership from the White House and from the executive branch. And this might be the one issue. Even if Hong Kong divides, uh, divides uh, the executive and the legislative, this issue, Uyghurs and people in camps, 1.2 million people interned in camps, re-education camps, uh, looking a lot like the Soviet gulag, right? Even more people at one instance yep. than the Soviet gulag had at any one time. Uh, not, not completely over the whole course of the time, but at one point in time. And so you think about it, this might be the one thing that unites Donald Trump and Nancy Pelosi. It might be the one thing that brings them together. Uh, the one thing that Bernie Sanders and and I guess not Kamala Harris anymore, but, you know, uh, uh, Amy Klobuchar and and the entire slate of candidates on Democratic side of the aisle um, and, and Donald Trump might be this one issue. And if this is the issue, you know, maybe we can lead and have some moral leadership and moral authority um, just because, uh, you know, we can't lead on every issue doesn't mean we can't lead on some. And this seems to be the one. Where the United States can and should stand up and be counted, but I worry that whether it's in service of a trade deal or something else, we won't do that. And if we don't, I predict that we will we will live we will in
1: our in our lifetimes live to regret that decision. I, I can't help but think of uh, the big student campaign, and Jody, you, you know, you're kind of giving me a little bit of hope here if it's making it into the high schools. But I, I think about the big student campaign in high schools and colleges around Darfur, in Sudan, which is a which is a place. I mean, how many Americans had heard of Darfur, you know, 20 years ago? But uh, then students kind of took up the issue of human rights concerns in Darfur and really started protesting against the Khartoum government and what they were doing to the the people uh, in that in that uh, western region of Sudan. And, uh, and it really transformed U.S. policy. It, it started. It started with uh, kind of students, young people getting very active across the political spectrum. It was conservatives. It was folks in the middle. It was folks on the far left who were all involved in protesting. That made it to the hill. That Congress took a huge interest in Sudan generally, and eventually it, it drove uh, you know the creation of South Sudan, which of course had its own problems. But like a real change in U.S. policy towards Sudan. So maybe maybe there's hope that on Xinjiang you could see. Uh, young people start to become more active and really force both of the parties and both the, you know, the Article One branch of government and the Article Two branch of government to step up to the plate and do more.
3: I would just say I think that that it all is perhaps possible and would be great. But even a unified United States would not change this situation. Without leadership on the international stage, so for these are these are Muslims that are being imprisoned, the government of Saudi Arabia, who presents itself as the custodian of the two holy places and sees itself as the leader of the world's Muslims, silent. Almost every Muslim majority country, uh, especially in the Middle East, the heart and the, the founding place of Islam, silent. And you know, given Chinese economic investment in Africa silent um most countries in Asia silent you're where are the Europeans and so to me this is a great even if we were unified here on this issue and and in a in a had bipartisan desire to assume a mantle of moral leadership on this issue without actually pressing other countries unless I there is true global unity in opposition I don't see the situation changing Surely. So historically, it's the U.S. that has had the lead on these
2: types on these types of issues. So the bill that is likely to pass the Senate this week, next week, and I, I think gets signed into law uh, by President Trump is an initial step, right? It imposes some sanctions. Uh, what follows is what will really, really matter, right? Do we take those sanctions and then turn them into some real economic sanctions Put some real teeth behind this, like we did with South Africa and other places. I think we're waiting to see whether or not that will happen. You know, to be fair, China isn't South Africa or Sudan in the context of economic sanctions, but it it also makes it easier for us. There are smaller buttons we can push there that will have more economic impact than they than they would have in either of the either of the other places.
0: Jamil. you know, uh, I think one of the things that Jody I think highlights in what she said was the fact that. You know, not only has our engagement of China in the economic community uh, not succeeded in getting the political reforms we wanted, in some ways it's handcuffed us to China, making it harder for us to assert moral leadership in a way, in a way that we could have asserted when it came to South Africa and to Sudan. It's hard to assert moral leadership when you're so tied economically to them, and that's part of the challenge I think the President Trump faces. That being said, the idea that we would Trade our most basic morality, the idea that uh, we could accept, we as a free nation, a free democratic capitalist nation, could accept 1.2 million people being interned against their will, being re educated. I mean, this is one of the key things that Ronald Reagan, you know, Jody quoted him earlier, that Ronald Reagan used to talk about what the Soviet Union did to its own people and ultimately undermine support in Russia and in the Soviet Union uh, for their own government, the same thing can happen here, but we have to be willing to do it. And the and data is exactly right. The fact that Muslim majority countries um, have failed to at all step up, including the custodians of the two holy mosques in Saudi Arabia, you know, is 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 catastrophically. It's pathetic. Uh, it's it's outrageous. And and it's no surprise that, you know, other people aren't willing to step up when You know, the people who are being persecuted for their own religions countries won't stand up for them. Now, that being said, those countries have their own problems, maybe a reason why they're not stepping up. um, But the U.S. can and should lead and can lead our Muslim majority allies and frankly shame them into doing what they should have done from the beginning.
2: So just quickly on on Jamil's last point, you know, the Saudis, the Egyptians at all don't so much care about prosecuting and persecuting. Muslims at home, so caring about Muslims in other places uh, seems, you know, just par for the course for them. What I want to highlight here, though, is the inspiration we should take from Hong Kong, which is the six months of protests have had a real economic impact on Hong Kong. They're actually facing a recession for the first time in many, many years. And you know what? The people there have decided that these issues of democracy are more important to them than than the short-term economic gains. And it's worth noting in this context that the, the, the organization that came out first against the extradition bill was the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, right, which is a highly unusual step for a U.S. Chamber to take because they recognized how critically important this issue of Hong Kong's autonomy was, and that without it, there could be no long-term economic success. I am hopeful that the business community continues to double down on this position in Hong Kong as well as in Xinjiang.
1: All right. <clears throat> so uh, let's let's tease out for our uh, fi- kind of final uh, lightning round question on this topic. Let's tease out the reaction of the Muslim world to what's going on in Xinjiang, which is uh, it seems to me you've got Saudi... Uh, Egypt, Turkey, all basically siding with Beijing on the Xinjiang issue. They're um, they're repressive regimes of various kinds themselves. They're not super responsive to the. To their own people. However, you can't help but think that if it were better known what was going on in Xinjiang province, that the people, that the Egyptian people, the Turkish people, and the Saudi people would have a very different view than their governments about what's going on. And I kind of think about uh, back to the late 70s when the Soviet Union rolled into Afghanistan and started oppressing Afghani's. The Muslim world uh, reacted with horror once they realized what's going on. So if so if there was a if there was a brighter spotlight on what's going on in Western China in Xinjiang Province, and those human rights abuses were exposed, would that change the reaction in the Muslim world, Jamil?
0: I'd like to say yes. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, you know, we have as recently as, you know, this July, the Saudi Arabian government writing to uh, the Chinese uh, president saying, you know, we understand you set up these vocational and training centers in, in, in the Xinjiang province. And, you know, you've got this, you're faced this threat of terrorism. And so, you know, we understand you're doing what you have to do. And then for the, for the UN ambassador from Saudi Arabia to say, well, that wasn't, that was about their development work. I mean, it could not be less true. And so one hopes that by shining a bright light on these issues, uh, as the New York Times did and as other publications have, um, you know, that we will be able to sort of shame people into doing the right thing, including uh, these Muslim majority countries, but without leadership on the world stage, without the American president, and it has to be the president can't just be Congress without the president being willing to take what the authorities that Congress is going to give him maybe even force upon him and utilizing them and getting out there aggressively and taking a moral a moral stand on this issue and not letting economics play a role in this uh, and then leading our Muslim majority country allies uh, to this point. I worry that no amount of, of light being shown on this issue will solve the problem. And I worry that the people of China see that and see that they are not able to protest against their own government and not able to push back because they won't get backed. By the United States. We have got to say we are here. We'll stand by you. And it's not just the English speaking people in Hong Kong that we will back on these issues and we won't throw them away or you away for a trade deal. Jody.
2: All right. So in order for the premise of your question to be true, that the people in the Muslim world are going to rise up against their own governments and ask them to do something, they would need a free press. For starters, it's hard to see that happening. But I think the real answer to your question as to why it's not happening is is the perennial one, which is money, right? So, you know, trade between Egypt and China and trade between Pakistan and China has actually grown really substantially over the last couple of years. And I don't think it'll surprise anybody here uh, if I were to ask you who is the country that has doubled their purchases Uh, of oil from Saudi Arabia over the last year. China. Correct. Thanks. I mean, the perennial answer to why people don't do
3: things when they should, money. Dana. So I think the state control of press is one thing. And two, the people of, of the Middle East know about atrocities being committed in Syria in yemen in libya they actually see visuals of, of suffering people dying children suffering civilians every single day and that hasn't caused them to basically rise up and demand that their governments take action in in the near abroad so i i'm very pessimistic that it would cause them to to call for decisive action to save the uyghurs in china
1: I think there's a huge opportunity to drive uh, Muslim perceptions of what's going on in Xinjiang, uh, where Muslims are being persecuted at the hands of godless communists, uh, and and we should be we should be doing that from the grassroots level and perhaps uh, in some Machiavellian sense uh, with some of our government agencies. And I would
3: just say in response to that, at this point in time, I don't think anyone in the region or in the world is looking to President Trump for moral leadership and authority.
1: That's true. But there are other people in government who can do the same thing. Uh, all right. Let's go to uh, – let's close out that topic and go to our uh, kind of final round of the issue you're following that may not be in the headlines right now. Uh, Dana, you're making eye contact with me. You go first.
3: It sort of made the headlines from hot second this weekend. There was a prisoner exchange with Iran um, – Long-time detained Princeton student was swapped in Zurich uh, in exchange for an Iranian scientist this weekend. So a lot of the talk about this is whether or not this was a small tactical move that could be an opening to a broader set of negotiations between the trump administration and the iranian regime president trump has said over and over that uh he would like to meet with Rouhani. he even tweeted that this shows that the united states and the iranians can make a deal jody right so i'm
2: following uh the world anti-doping agency's decision this morning Uh, to ban Russia from global sports for the next four years, which would mean Russian athletes or maybe just some Russian athletes couldn't compete in the 2020 Olympics and the World Cup and so on. The really interesting part of this story isn't the ban. The really interesting part of this story is the disagreement between the anti-doping agency and the International Olympic Committee. So with the doping agency calling for a ban on participation of all Russian athletes and the IOC not adopting that position and and saying that athletes should be allowed to participate uh, under basically the IOC flag. So when I initially read the story, I kind of felt that russian athletes maybe should have that opportunity to compete until i dug into it a little bit more and so the reason for the anti-doping agency's position banning all russian athletes from competition has to do with the fact that the russians have now gone back altered their databases of athletes such that the IOC and the doping agency will be unable to determine which prior athletes doped and which ones didn't. So it's entirely possible if they allow Russian athletes to compete at all that some of them will have participated in doping and cheating activity in the past.
0: Jamil. Sounds kind of like the Iranians and nuclear prior nuclear dimension of their uh, of their of their programs. Uh, but we'll put that to one side. Um, the issue I'm following uh, is is uh, Russia and Ukraine, uh, but not in the way you think. Right. Not because of the impeachment scandals and not because of all the debates going on here in the United States about Ukraine policy, but instead about the new president of Ukraine going to meet with Vladimir Putin and ahead of that meeting being willing to potentially accept essentially some quasi-autonomous status for some of these Russian-speaking provinces uh, or parts of Ukraine. Very troubling uh, decision. Uh, one that I think is inevitable, was inevitable, because the United States, again, has failed to lead. We failed in the Obama administration uh, to lead on Ukraine. We failed in the Trump administration. We let the Russians roll over that country, um, as we have let them dominate in the Middle East, in the Syrian theater. Um, that is a long-term mistake for us. We Russia is not a serious country. They are not a. They are not an economic powerhouse. They're frankly a failing country. And the more that we allow them to look like a bigger player, uh, the more that we allow them to manipulate our allies and friends in Eastern Europe uh, to play a significant role in in the Middle East, um, and frankly to uh, to monkey with our elections. Right, the more we fail. Uh, in our long-term strategy to, to be a leader in the world, and that's a mistake. Uh, we see the results of that here in this meeting between uh, Zelensky and, uh, and Putin. I
1: worry more of that to come uh, the less we are willing to lead in the world. All right, the issue I'm following is uh, sanctions on Turkey, which uh, have already passed the House and are n- about to be considered by the Senate Foreign Relations Committee this week, uh, it looks like as of right now. Uh, the majority leader is very skeptical of this. Uh, the chairman of the committee himself is skeptical but engaging. Uh, he's working with the ranking member. There are other big personalities involved in the Senate. It's unclear how tough this legislation will be right now when it gets out of the Foreign Relations Committee or if it'll even make it to the Senate floor. But. That every little step that goes by makes it more and more likely that the U.S. could be imposing more sanctions on Turkey, which, of course, is a NATO ally and could really disrupt uh, our relationship with them, and in the in the broader Middle East region and perhaps even in Europe. Okay, uh, that's a wrap. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. We uh, hope you enjoyed it, and we look forward to uh, having another episode come out in a couple of weeks. And happy holidays to everyone.